at the start, I find referencing the heart chakra very, very helpful in uh, living my life. Because, um, I don't know about you, but much of my life has been lived in narratives, up in the frontal lobes, and personally I'm fed up with it. <laughs> so I found that uh, contacting and making conscious the heart chakra is a particularly uh, um, connected way to to live my life. It's much more. It's much less selfish. Much more informed about my interaction with the things that are around me. So. That's the way I developed that. That little meditation that I did is a way of developing a sensitivity around around the heart chakra. Um, so personally, uh, when I wake up in the morning, I, I try to really notice whatever the mood of the mind is. It's a very important part of my practice. Sometimes the dream material that comes through in the sleeping state can be... Uh, kind of very negative sometimes. Sometimes I wake up, I'd be very open-hearted. But whatever it is, I, I write from the moment that uh, I know I'm back on planet Earth, I try to make conscious the mood of the mind. And then I, if, it's, if it's had some negative material, I try to really process that by knowing it as an object rather than just getting up and sort of... Um, muttering away, muttering away as I brush my teeth in that mode of consciousness. So I have to really know the mood of the mind. So whether it's positive or negative doesn't really matter. It's the awakening to that and establishing awareness which knows this mood is an object. It's not who I am. And, and the way I do process that is I try to go to the heart chakra. I try to really make that my, um, should I say, it's, you know, I brush my teeth and I go to my heart, kind of thing. And I find it very profitable for um, then relating to the monks, relating to nature. There's a lot of beauty in it. It's not something that's manufactured as an idea, but it's an enlivening of something that's there all the time. Um, it's connected to gratitude and empathy and open-heartedness and all those words. I access it a lot through gratitude. I do gratitude practices. I've been very fortunate with parents and teachers. So I keep stimulating that. And, and this meditation was a way of, of suggesting that possibility. The, the practices of metta bhavana, as they're called, are, are varied in, in, in the Theravada Buddhism and in, in all the schools of Buddhism. So each of us probably finds a way where we can access that in, in, in our own way. Gratitude's a very good way to do it. Sometimes uh, you get a. Sometimes people get a sense of having to manufacture some fantastic sense of um, universal compassion or whatever, which then becomes a kind of abstract, abstract idea of what uh, connection empathy is. But this way, for me, gratitude is very real, and it's for me a. I've lived a fortunate life, so it's very easy, actually, to to touch the heart in that way. And then after, say, stimulating that, then meditating actually from that place, living from that place, speaking from that place, 
going to committee meetings from that place, etc., etc. is is a very uh, um, I find a very beautiful way to live my life. Processing fear and anger there too is very helpful. Doubt, self doubt, all those things. <clears throat> so that works for me. I wanted to uh, Jim and I over too much coffee. We're discussing um, the word the word dukkha, and I just like to run through how that is used in Theravada Buddhism. So for those of you who are familiar with Theravada, you have the word dukkha, which traditionally gets translated as suffering or unsatisfactions. It's used in three ways. One is called dukkha vedana. And dukkha vedana, vedana means the affective tone of your experience. So I stub my toe, the affective tone of that uh, Foot experience is uh, negative or uh, unpleasant or dukkha vedana. Uh, I had a lovely breakfast. The affective tone of that breakfast was sukha vedana. So vedana is the feeling or the affective tone of the sense experience. And that's a given. That's just the way we're constructed. And if we didn't have dukkha vedana, uh, we wouldn't know when we cut our finger. Uh, we wouldn't know what food tastes appropriate and doesn't taste appropriate. And, and, and the affective tone of life is, is, a, is a range, isn't it? It's a spectrum. So the, from the extremely, extremely ecstatic to the kind of marginally pleasant to the neutral to the sort of unpleasant to the, to the horrible, horrible, horrible. So life has that spectrum. And all experience has, in, in Theravada Buddhism, has a Vedana as a component. So it's there. So that's dukkha vedana. Uh, another way this is used, the word dukkha, is dukkha satcha, and satcha is truth, and that's connected to the Four Noble Truths. And that formulation is given in various ways, but I think Jim and Randy have taught it a lot. Uh, I hope you guys have. So, so the Four Noble Truths, uh, there's different formulations of it, but that's that the, the, the sense of being conflicted with the way things are in a way you don't understand. And it's not really the unpleasant nature of life. It's the conflicted confusion, misunderstanding of life as it's presenting itself. And that comes up in all kinds of ways, fear, anger, and, and the rest of it. So in terms of dukkha vedana, if I have a feeling of fear... The affective tone of the fear is dukkha vedana. The affect is unpleasant. It's not the same as feeling uh, 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 inspired. So if I feel inspired, that's sukha vedana. Right? And if I feel frightened, that's dukkha vedana. So they have an affective tone. It becomes dukkha satcha. It becomes suffering. And this is very important. When I don't just see it as an object. When I see the object, as, when I see fear, as an objective experience, and I know, oh, this is a sensitive fear. It has a, it has an emotional component, it has a bodily component, it has a narrative, and I know it as an object. Then it's not really suffering. It's unpleasant. It's not really suffering. When I grasp it with a sense of I and all the habits I have around it, what am I going to do? What's going to happen? And how am I going to sort this out? That grasping, that's dukkha in the sense of the four noble truths, suffering. It's very important. So 
and I think we all know it. Like if you're a meditator, you you you've you've gone through physical pain and realize it's not suffering; it's just physical pain. But when you start, when you start as a meditator, you have physical pain. You get all restless. Look at the clock, man. How am I going to sit through this? And you look back on it now, and you think, big deal, bit of pain. Right? I think we've all learned that lesson. And that's 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 the difference between dukkha vedana as the affective tone not becoming suffering. It's not suffering. It's only suffering when I attach to it. Okay? Dukkha lakana is the third. Sorry about all the Pali, but you know, got to do it. Dukkha lakana. Lakana is characteristic. And this is a, a different use of the word dukkha. And lakana characteristic means it, it applies to all, all sense experience. And so we say anything that has a nature to arise has a nature to cease, and it's unsatisfactory. This is dukkha, lakana. And it's unsatisfactory. Why? Because of the Buddha's enlightenment. And the Buddha's enlightenment is pointing to something which is not subject to change. The realization of the unconditioned or his enlightenment. If you didn't have that, then you probably wouldn't have that characteristic. But because the Buddha's realized something which is bigger than Sukha Vedana, it's bigger than ice cream cones and frappuccinos. <laughs> right? It's bigger than that. But it's not saying that an ice cream cone is Dukkha Vedana, unless you've had ten. It's not saying that. It's not, and that's the misunderstanding of Buddhism you get. It's all suffering. Now, ice cream cones taste sour, but they don't. They taste vanilla <laughs> or whatever it is. But the thing is about ice cream cones and pleasure is that it's limited. It's limited. And if you put too much hope on the pleasant, then, of course, you're in conflict with the unpleasant. And you're looking in the wrong place for what the Buddha realized. And what the Buddha realized was something beyond affect beyond pleasant and pain. We still have, you know, when you read about, we were, were reading the, well, this last full moon was, was Vesaka Puja, where we celebrate the life of the Buddha, and we were reading uh, some texts on his life, and uh, this, this last year was rough. He was 80 years old, he's walking around, his body's withered, he's, he gets food poisoning. That's Dukkha Vedana. But you know darn well he wasn't suffering. And, and uh, in, he's given a set of robes, and the robes are made of gold thread or something, and he's more radiant than the robes. Huh? So, so he was experiencing Dukkha Vedana, and we'll have Dukkha Vedana all of this lifetime. Sorry. <laughs> you ain't going to get out of that one. And your kids will, and our society will, and your car will break down too. <laughs> it'll get old right? you'll get a flat tire and you'll have, still have winter in Toronto and that's nature isn't it but you also will have spring and dogwoods and robins good friendships you know, not, that's just part of life so Dukkalakana is a very important one because it's just it's really about, about the, the Buddhist suggestion that there is something we're missing and what we're missing is that which is unconditioned, which is not dependent, which is not an affect. So as long as our attention is bound by affects, pleasant and unpleasant, we're distracted. And as long as we're distracted, we're not available. 
And as long as we're not available, our attention is preoccupied. And as long as it's preoccupied, there ain't no space. You cannot realize something, uh, the unconditioned, if you're always preoccupied with conditions. So conditions are unsatisfactory. Which doesn't mean that you don't make a beautiful garden, have good friendships, cook a good meal, enjoy a game of squash, you know, whatever. It's, it's not against that. Otherwise, Buddhism would be this horrible wet blanket religion. And, and sometimes we Buddhists go there and say, oh, you're happy again. It's all... <laughs> it's changing. You know, that's the Buddhist put-down, isn't it? You know, you're really ecstatic about something. Oh, man, look at the new bell I've got. It's all a dukkha bante. <laughs> it's horrible. It's a horrible way to live. But it's not about that. It's, it's, it's not about that. Right? So beauty has its place, but ugliness has its place too. You know, it's a part of nature. So dukkha-lakana dukha then is very much the contemplative area. You know, it's the area of the contemplative looking at experience and saying, so, so what was he on about, the Buddha? Well, what's he pointing to here? Right? And, and, and the way you do that is through the Four Noble Truths. Because when, when, when I'm existentially suffering, when it, when it isn't just the affect of unpleasantness, when, I'm, when I have an existential problem, i got to sort that problem out. Or I'm just going to be a victim of that over and over and over and over again. And in the sorting out of that, the deepest sorting out of that, is to realize there is the unconditioned. So it's not about being a perfect person or having perfect emotions or all that, but the development of the heart, say, the development of patience and, and, and morality and generosity are the foundation for that sense of availability, that sense of possibility to become available to something which we cannot find through desire, which is not an affect. So these, these the, the, when we were talking this morning at breakfast time, there's a lot of confusion of that. So someone will say that, that uh, sense experiences, it's all suffering. And then, yeah, but, but green is beautiful. Right? And, and, and the shape of the, of the magnolia blossom is, is, is lovely. Smell of the lilac is very pleasant. And you get really confused, right? But if you see that, no, it's pointing to something else, the characteristic, then you see, oh, okay, there's, there's the beauty of the lilac, but there's the knowing of that. Oh, yeah, the, the beauty points back to the knowing. But so does the ugliness. You know, so does the rotten lilac. It points back to the knowing. And I, I, I think of this as the, uh, um, the idolatry of experience. You know, when experience is important in itself and for itself, then we're always focused on experience. And that, in, in religious terms, is idolatry. When I look at the Buddha image, and I think this little brass guy is going to take care of me, I just better keep bowing. Give him some incense, a bit of water, a bit of candles. He'll sort it out for me. That's idolatry, isn't it? I don't do that. <laughs> but I do bow. And, uh, and so on. But that bowing and the image reminds me of the awake mind. Beauty can do that. Uh, you know, a beautiful piece of music or 
uh, a beautiful garden can stop your mind, can't it? A pleasant uh, you know, canoe canoe trip without mosquitoes, <laughs> which is hard to do in Canada, can remind you of that. A, a, a child's uh, uh, delightful piece of art can open you in a, in a way of silence and wonder, right? but it's pointing back to you. Then experience is religious or spiritual because it's always pointing back to the awareness. And cult, our culture, consumer culture, most cultures, is the idolatry of things, isn't it? But we're not dismissing things. We're just putting them in the, in the right context, you know, in the correct context. So I, I always talk about the aesthetics of Buddha images. You've probably heard me talk in that way. We, we, you know, we have an aesthetic sense of what we think a beautiful Buddha is. So if you see a, uh, some of the Buddhas in Asia, you know, like whopping great red lips, and an ice cream cone sticking out the head, you think, whoa. But if you're using a Buddha image, not in a way of aesthetic, but in a way of reflection, then you notice your reaction to the aesthetics of the Buddha image, and you become awake to that, and you're aware of the mind. You're not caught in the aesthetics. And I'm not suggesting you go and buy one, put it in your room, you don't have to do that. But... Aestheticism, and, and, and Buddha images have become the object d'or, I think, for gardens and, you know, gnomes no matter make it. <laughs> you have to have a, a Buddha head sitting there. So, so they become, you know, I guess it's all right, but it misses the point. It misses the point. It's, a, it's something that reminds you of the awakened mind. So this is what we do in a monastery. We have Buddha images and we have stupas and things like that, and pictures <coughs> of our teachers. And so when, like, as a contemplative, you look at the Buddha image and you say, oh, it's reminding me of what? The awakened mind. And then the awakened mind is the doorway to the unconditioned. The condition can't take you to the unconditioned unless you just reverse it. But the quality of conditions will always be unsatisfactory. Right? So the pleasant, so here, and here's the test now, if you understand this, dukkha, Sukha Vedana is Dukkha Lakana. Got that? No. Okay, you fail. <laughs> Duk, you have Dukkha Vedana is the feeling, and Sukha Vedana is the feeling. Sukha is pleasant, and Dukkha is unpleasant. So Sukha Vedana, the taste of the ice cream cone, is Dukkha Lakana. It's unsatisfactory. Not that it tastes bad, it's just... Don't put all your chips on ice cream cones. And vice versa, vice versa, Dukkha Vedana is not suffering unless you make it suffering. And you make it suffering by not wanting it. Right? And so you begin to abide in what we call equanimity or emptiness. You begin to abide in a peaceful way, in a peaceful coexistence with the way things are. And you, you act appropriately, you know. If, if, if the garden has weeds, you take the weeds out. <coughs> but you don't obsess with it, right? Uh, and if it's, if it's too hot, you put on the air conditioning and then you get a sweater because it's too cold <laughs> or whatever. So life is lived in a very, very beautiful way. And if you live life from the heart, I think, for me, rather than from desire and from the head and all that, intelligence functions. You don't have to really figure that much out. Get on with it. 
But so the contemplative's challenge is to 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 realize the unconditioned through the awareness of conditions. And the suffering comes about through the attachment to conditions. So you have this word attachment. Is that too confusing or is that helpful or <laughs> very important, Theravada, because it can really sound like a ooh, really sort of arid arid kind of practice with no heart. It's a very beautiful, very beautiful reflection. Any questions around that for anyone? Something to ponder for the moment. I'm having a problem with the with the third one, Dukkha Lakana. Lakana, because it seems to me that it's very much the second one that we call Dukkha Sacha. Dukkha Lakana refers to Anicca Dukkha Nata. They're the three characteristics: that which has a nature to arise, has a nature to cease. If if I don't see dukkha lakana in the conditioned phenomena, that will lead to suffering in that existential sense. If I, if I see that, let's say, as a meditator, you have, you, you, know, you have an experience and you have some sense of insight and you feel inspired. Wow. You get the wow, right? And then you go to the interview and everyone else wants the wow. Right? Well, I wish I had the wow. And and you feel, yeah, okay, now I, I understand that. I'm solid, okay? And then three months later, you go into self-doubt. Now, if, you, if you've understood that self-doubt is the same as inspiration, not a problem. Not a problem. But if you think that inspiration, you don't see that inspiration itself has dukkha, lakana in it. Its characteristic is unsatisfactory. How could inspiration be unsatisfactory? Right? Because it's sukha, it's fe- you know, it's a good feeling. Then when self-doubt comes up, you panic. I've lost it. My practice is down the tube. But if you see that each emotional response we have to life is, is as it is, pleasant and unpleasant, and it has the characteristics of anicca dukkanata, and you, and you keep that focus, then self-doubt, you can bear with it. It's not a problem. You don't, you don't go running with it for days and days and days. And you begin to see the equality of those things. The self-doubt is natural, and inspiration is natural. Huh? If you don't see self-doubt as, as a phenomenon which has arisen and will cease, then you grasp it and you start to think, because you don't want the self-doubt. And that's the second noble truth, that suffering is caused by attachment to craving. And you run with it, and you think, and you think, and you think, and you read, and you read, and you read, and then someone says something, you say, oh, now I feel good. You feel inspired again. Oh, I'm back. I'm back on the path again. <laughs> Two months later, what? I don't know. I don't really know. And then you and, and you and you go through this. That's birth and death. Cycles of birth. And there's so many ways that happens, right? So in the death part, in the denouement, in the in the in the decline, that's when we seek rebirth. And the Buddha is saying, hang in. Look at craving. Look at craving that's an object. Don't seek another. Don't seek a replacement. Don't seek a compensation. Don't go for the ice cream cone. It's not in the fridge. <laughs> it is as it is. You wait it out because now you're watching craving. You're no longer concerned about the object of the experience of self-doubt. You're watching the craving not to have this. And as you watch that craving, the self-doubt screams at you for a while. No, no, this is just an object. Just an object. Don't seek another one. 
Don't seek another one. And you bear with this object as it ceases, you realize Nibbana. That's the taste. That's the taste of the unconditioned. That's the taste of the cessation of craving. And in those existential dilemmas that we have, they're, they're, they're so believable. You know, they're so, so believable. Our self-doubts or our resentments or our memories of whatever comes up. So a lot, and but if you if you get that fundamental fundamental Buddhism, uh, if, if you get that that basic that basic um, insight that the first of all, what are you shooting for? I'm shooting for the unconditioned. I don't know about you, right? That's my interest. That's my contemplative interest. Right? So so because that's my interest, then. And the insight is that the unconditioned can't be a condition. I've come to the, long ago, I came to the conclusion that whatever it is, I just have to be with it. It all belongs, as Ajahn Sumedho says, right? And so then, if, if I have difficulty being with something, I question, what's the desire? I don't want this or I want something else. And if I can be with the desire, then all conditions take you to the unconditioned. It's a brilliance of it. It's a brilliance of it. But some are, are particularly deluding and powerful, so it takes us a lot of repetitions of this kind of insight again and again and again.